This is Space Time, Series 22, Episode 84, for broadcast on the 15th of November 2019. Coming up on Space Time, a new, more precise measurement for the mass of the Higgs boson. NASA's Voyager 2 spacecraft illuminates the boundary of interstellar space. And the SMOS Climate Satellite celebrates 10 years in orbit. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Physicists have achieved a new level of precision in their efforts to measure the Higgs boson. Their latest measurements shows it has a mass of 125.35 gigaelectron volts, with a precision of 0.15 gigaelectron volts, an uncertainty of roughly 0.1%. In physics, an electron volt is the amount of kinetic energy gained or lost by a single electron, accelerating from rest through an electric potential difference of 1 volt in a vacuum. And through the energy mass equivalence equals mc squared, the electron volt is also used by astronomers and physicists as a unit of mass. The Higgs boson was discovered in 2012 by scientists with the ATLAS and CMS collaborations using the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, the world's largest atom smasher, at CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. The long-postulated Higgs, often referred to by non-scientists as the God Particle, is important because it gives mass to other elementary particles through its all-pervasive Higgs field. And since its discovery, scientists have been trying to learn more about the particle. The Higgs mass is closely related to the strength of the particle's interaction with itself. So, comparing precise measurements of these two properties provides a crucial means of testing the predictions of the standard model of particle physics. And any discrepancies could provide an indication of new physics beyond the standard model. The Higgs boson is unstable and decays nearly instantaneously into lighter particles. So the new findings are based on data collected from two other measurements. One measurement focused on the decay of two Z bosons, which subsequently decay into electron or muon pairs. Z bosons mediate the weak nuclear force, while muons are simply more massive, short-lived versions of electrons. The other measurement looked at the decay of two photons, particles of light which mediate the electromagnetic force. The Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, is a 27-kilometre-long ring buried 100 metres beneath the Franco-Swiss border near Geneva. Part of a large complex of particle accelerators, synchrotrons and other high-energy laboratories, the LHC includes four massive detectors called ATLAS, ALICE, CMS and LHCB, located in four massive underground caverns. The LHC works by accelerating packets of protons or other subatomic particles to within 99.9999% the speed of light in opposite directions in two particle beamlines around the ring guided by cryogenically cooled superconducting magnets. These beamlines are designed to intersect at any of the four detectors, colliding the particle packets at 13 tera-electron volts and recreating the sorts of conditions, pressures and temperatures that occurred just after the Big Bang 13.82 billion years ago. You're listening to Space Time. Still to come, a Northrop Grumman Cygnus cargo ship successfully docks with the International Space Station. And later in the Science Report, a new study shows that 60% of Americans now believe that all UFO sightings can be explained by human activity. All that and more still to come on Space Time. (laughs) 
Okay, time to take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. In today's hectic world, so many people think they haven't got the time to learn something new, to learn a new topic, pick up another hobby. Well, actually, The Great Courses Plus is proof that you do. It's an educational streaming service that makes learning easy, accessible and fun. There are thousands of lectures on practically any topic you can think of with objective in-depth information from some of the best teachers in the world. With The Great Courses Plus, you don't have to make time to learn. It's an app that fits in with your everyday schedule. You can learn while driving, commuting to work, on those long-haul flights, or even while you're washing the dishes. And one of the best things about The Great Courses Plus is that they keep adding new courses all the time. For example, there's this brand new course I've been listening to called A Field Guide to Planets. It's presented by Professor Sabine Stanley from Johns Hopkins University. If you ever wanted to take a trip into space, well, this course is a must. The visuals are stunning. And you get a detailed look and explanation not only of the planets, but also all the elements in between the planets that make up our solar system. It's a great way to learn about what our sun's family, and when you think about it, the Earth's neighbourhood is really all about. That's a field guide to the planets, a course you'll thoroughly enjoy. So, make learning part of your daily routine with The Great Courses Plus. And to get you started, we've got a special free trial with unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library for our space-time listeners. You can check out everything from quantum mechanics to photography tips and pretty well everything in between. But to get access to the free trial, you'll need to sign up through our special URL. That way they'll know you came from us and you'll be helping to support our show. So go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash space. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash space. And of course, those link details are in the show notes and on our website. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash space. And now it's back to the show. is Space Time with Stuart Gary. It was a year ago, on November the 5th, 2018, that NASA's Voyager 2 became only the second spacecraft in history to leave the heliosphere, the protective bubble of particles and magnetic fields created by the Sun, and which marks the boundary of our solar system. At a distance of around 18 billion kilometres from Earth, well beyond the 6 billion kilometre distance of Pluto, Voyager 2 has now entered interstellar space, the region between the stars. Now, scientists have published five new research papers in the journal Nature Astronomy describing what astronomers have observed during and since Voyager 2's historic crossing. Each paper deals with the findings from one of Voyager 2's five operating science instruments, a magnetic field sensor, two instruments to detect energetic particles in different energy ranges, and a further two instruments to study plasma, the ionized gas composed of charged particles. Taken together, these findings help paint a picture of what I guess is the cosmic shoreline, where the environment created by our sun ends and the vast ocean of interstellar space begins. Astronomers like to think of the Sun's heliosphere as a ship sailing through interstellar space. Both the heliosphere and interstellar space are filled with plasma. The plasma inside the heliosphere is hot and sparse, while the plasma in interstellar space is cooler and more dense. The interstellar space between the stars also contains cosmic rays, particles accelerated by exploding stars called supernovae. Voyager 2's sister spacecraft, Voyager 1, discovered that the heliosphere protects the Earth and other planets from more than 70% of that radiation. When Voyager 2 exited the heliosphere last year, scientists noted that its two energetic particle detectors noticed dramatic changes. The rate of heliospheric particles detected by the instruments plummeted, 
while at the same time the rate of cosmic rays, which typically have higher energies than the heliospheric particles, increased dramatically and remained high. The changes confirmed that the probe had indeed entered a new region of space. Before Voyager 1 reached the edge of the heliosphere in 2012, scientists didn't really know exactly how far away this boundary was from the Sun. The two probes exited the heliosphere at different locations, and also at different times in the constantly repeating approximately 11-year solar cycle, over the course of which the Sun goes through periods of high and low activity. Scientists always expected that the edge of the heliosphere, called the heliopause, can move in and out as the Sun's activity changes, sort of like a lung expanding and contracting with breath. This was consistent with the fact that the two probes encountered the heliopause at different distances from the Sun. The new papers now confirm that Voyager 2 isn't yet in undisturbed interstellar space. Like its twin Voyager 1, Voyager 2 appears to be in a perturbed transitional region just beyond the heliosphere. Voyager project scientist Professor Ed Stone from Caltech says the Voyager probes are showing how the Sun interacts with the stuff that fills most of the space between the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Without this new data from Voyager 2, astronomers would know if what they saw in the Voyager 1 data was characteristic of the entire heliosphere or just specific to that location and time when Voyager 1 crossed. The two Voyager spacecraft have now confirmed that the plasma in local interstellar space is significantly denser than the plasma inside the heliosphere. Voyager 2's also managed to measure the temperature of the plasma in nearby interstellar space and confirm that it's colder than plasma inside the heliosphere. Back in 2012, Voyager 1 observed a slightly higher-than-expected plasma density just outside the heliosphere, indicating that the plasma there was being somewhat compressed. Voyager 2's now observed that the plasma outside the heliosphere where it is is slightly warmer than expected, which could also indicate that it's being compressed. Voyager 2 also observed a slight increase in plasma density just before it exited the heliosphere, indicating that the plasma is compressed around the inside edge of the bubble but scientists don't yet fully understand exactly what's causing the compression on either side. If the heliosphere is like a ship sailing through interstellar space, then it appears the hull is somewhat, well, leaky. In fact, one of Voyager's particle instruments shows that a trickle of particles from inside the heliosphere is slipping through the boundary and into interstellar space. Voyager 1 exited very close to the front of the heliosphere relative to the bubble's movement through space. Voyager 2, on the other hand, is located closer to the flank, and this region appears to be more porous than the region where Voyager 1 is located. Meanwhile, an observation from Voyager 2's magnetic instrument has confirmed a surprising result from Voyager 1. The magnetic field in the region just beyond the heliopause is parallel to the magnetic field inside the heliopause. With Voyager 1, scientists only had one example of these magnetic fields, and so they couldn't say for sure whether the apparent alignment was characteristic of the entire exterior region or just a coincidence. But Voyager 2's magnetometer observations confirmed the Voyager 1 findings, showing that the two fields are indeed aligned. To find out more about Voyager 2's discoveries, Andrew Dunkley is speaking with astronomer Dr Fred Watson. The remarkable journey of Voyager 2, not which notwithstanding the wonderful journey of Voyager 1, but it's got a broken bit. That's why Voyager 2 is uh, a little bit more interesting in terms of, uh, of its recent achievement. Let's, um, where is it exactly? It's so many gazillion miles away, uh, 119.7 astronomical units would be my guess. But um, yeah. <laughs> what's the latest? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it is 119.7 astronomical unit. An astronomical what a unit coincidence. Is, that's what I thought. It, is the is the distance the average distance between the Earth and the Sun, which is 150 million kilometers? Wow! Uh, 
Or as I used to say when I was a kid, is it 93 million miles? I think it's 90, might be 92. Anyway, about 90-ish million miles. Yeah. But 150 million kilometres, since we all use kilometres in this country these days. But it's a staggering distance. It's actually not as far as... <laughs> Not as far as Voyager 1, which is the most remote human-made object. Voyager 1's a little bit further along the track. But Voyager 2 is about 17 billion kilometres from the sun. And why is it in the news? Because it has just crossed the heliosheath. The heliosheath. Uh, Yes, the heliosheath is... Uh, th- I've a heard of the heliopause because I saw, yeah. I saw that yeah. in a doco once about Voyager 1's journey. Yeah. And now so Voyager 2 what we're talking about basically is the boundary between the the sun's magnetic field and the interstellar magnetic field. And it, it, it's not just a simple boundary, it's complicated. So there is a heliopause, that's the transition, but there is also a heliosheath, which I think is I think is the part on the sort of leading edge of the sun's magnetic field of influence. Might be wrong there, but I think that's what it is. <laughs> good enough for me, Fred. Yeah, it sounds good, doesn't it? There's the, so um, actually there's something else too, which I think is further further in towards the sun, and that's the termination shock. And I have to say, I'm, you know, my knowledge of um, uh, particularly magnetic physics in, in the interstellar medium is not as detailed as it could be. And so these terms are ones that probably mean as much to me as they do to you. But basically, they mean the edge. Uh, they're at the, at the edge of the sun's magnetic influence. Now, just one thing to preface this discussion with is that they're not at the edge of the sun's gravitational influence because gravity goes on forever. And there are objects which are bound to the sun, which are much, much further out than either of the voyagers are. And these are comets. There is a cloud of cometary debris which circulates around the sun. It's called the Oort cloud. And it's a lot further away from the sun than we're talking about now. But those comets exist in a, whilst they, you know, they're, they're connected to the sun gravitationally, they are actually orbiting the sun, but in the interstellar medium. So they're, they're not connected magnetically to the sun. Wow. Yeah, I, I forgot about the Oort cloud. I mean, we, we, it, it's very hard to think in terms of the enormity of what we're discussing sometimes, that just the massive size of the things around us that uh, you can see and look through and, and, and witness, but it, you just don't get it. <laughs> and yeah. The only way to get it is to get out there and look back. And <laughs> we haven't really had too many options, opportunities to do that. Voyager 2 is fascinating because it's been able to offer us some information um, now that it's crossed that that threshold that we were talking about. And it, it did something that Voyager 1 couldn't because it had a broken bit as far as I understand. Yeah, that's right. So, so Voyager 2 has got it, all its faculties still operating. What it's done is measured the plasma density. That's the density of these ionised particles, particles that have been you know, denuded of their electrons. And the really interesting bit is that this plasma density, when you leave the sun's field of influence, it actually goes up. It jumps upwards hugely. And you might expect it to be the other way around because the sun's a relatively nearby object. It's streaming out these high, uh, the, the particles, the solar wind. And you might think that the solar wind having its source nearby would be much denser than the interstellar 
wind, if I can put it that way, the, the plasma that's caused by interstellar space. But the reason why it's the other way around, and it actually is the other way around by a factor of 20 in this case, I can give you the numbers. I might just do that. And yeah. this is particle density in the our side of the of the heliopause. That's the, the as we said earlier, the boundary between the two. It's about 0 0.002 particles per cubic centimetre. So that means you know, you've got much less than one particle per cc. But on the other side, it jumps up to almost 0 0.04 particles per cubic centimetre. And what's that, what that's telling you is that there are 20 times as many particles beyond the boundary as there are on this side of the boundary. And it comes about because their, their effective temperature of that interstellar wind is much lower. Its temperature is lower, and that increases the density of the particles. As, you, as temperature goes up, the density decreases. So so the temperature of the solar wind, if I can put it that way, is much higher than the temperature on the interstellar particle flux. So yes, interesting stuff. What's also interesting, I think, about this is that when Voyager 1 crossed this boundary in a completely different direction, because I think Voyager 1 went to the north of the equator and Voyager 2 to the south. I think I'm right in saying that. It might be the other way around, but they are different. Because the sun's magnetic field of influence, certainly in this direction, is roughly spherical, you'd expect these two distances from the sun when the spacecraft crossed the boundary to be more or less the same. And indeed, they are slightly different, but not very different. So we've just seen Voyager 2 Cross. In fact, it's not just is the wrong word. It's actually about a year ago, but this is, you know, the results that are being analysed. Yeah. Uh, we've seen it cross the heliopause at a distance as, as exactly as you said of 119.7 astronomical units. Six years ago, Voyager 1 did the same trick in a different direction, and the distance there was 122.6 astronomical units. So they're really relatively small differences in where they cross in terms of the distance from the Sun. I think that's quite remarkable. It, it tells you that this region around the sun certainly at this point is roughly spherical mm. and it's good to have the theoretical predictions actually basically demonstrated by these measurements i wonder what gary flandro would think of it all i don't know why don't you ask him i is he still around <laughs> isn't he the guy that thought of the idea of Sending the voyages out there because he um, realised the alignment was the alignment correct. of the planets. Yeah, I'm not sure about uh, the, the identity of that person, um, but I trust you to have found found that name from a reliable source and not just a science fiction novel called Parallax or something like that. No, it's um, not in there. No, but um, but, but I think it was him. Uh, there was yeah. also another fellow who headed up the project, uh, Harris Shermeyer, and yes. uh, I. I uh, he is he has passed away um uh, but he probably was around long enough to understand the ramifications of the missions because they did what they were designed to do but then they kept on going yeah they and did, going that's right. and going yeah. and, and so that you know the voyager project has been extended by nasa about 10 times i think yeah. 1977 i think was the year that the spacecraft were launched voyager 2 was launched before voyager 1 um, and Voyager 1's mission involved flybys of Jupiter and Saturn, but Voyager 2 included those two and Uranus and Neptune as well. And it was exactly as you said, it was a few individuals who realised that if you were quick about it, you could get a spacecraft off into the wide blue yonder, then you could take advantage of the alignment of these planets and use the, the, the ones that you're flying by as gravitational slingshots, so you push them on further out into the solar system. Yeah, Gary uh, Arnold Flandro was the one 
one who made that discovery. And Very good. Uh, it was sort of a, a backroom concept that became something super extraordinary. Yeah. And still and is. It is. I, I, they're sort of magical machines, really. Uh, just to uh, kind of tie up one other loose end, they both are powered by radioisotope thermoelectric generators, RTGs, which have a limited lifetime as the power gradually falls away from the heat that these bags of, or boxes of plutonium are providing, the various instruments, non-critical instruments, will be switched off as time goes on. And at the end, we will only have telecommunications, just telemetry going between the Earth and the spacecraft. But we don't expect that to happen until round about 2032. So there's still life in the old spacecraft yet, and we Hope we'll hear more about them as they venture into space. At their, it's roughly, I think their speed is of the order of 17 kilometres per second or thereabouts, and uh, they'll keep on going, probably forever. That's Professor Fred Watson, an astronomer with the Department of Science, speaking with Andrew Dunkley on our sister programme, Space Nuts. And this is Space Time. I'm Stuart Gary. The European Space Agency Soil, Moisture and Ocean Salinity, or SMOS, satellite has just celebrated its 10th year in orbit. SMOS was launched back on November 2, 2009, from the Plesetsk Cosmodrome, some 800 kilometres north of Moscow, aboard a Rokot Briz KM rocket. The Rokot is actually a converted SS-19 Stiletto intercontinental ballistic missile, with its usual thermonuclear warheads removed and replaced by a scientific payload. The mission is part of ESA's Living Planet program, intended to provide new insights into Earth's water cycle and climate. It was designed to deliver data on soil moisture and ocean salinity, both crucial components of Earth's hydrological cycle. By constantly mapping these variables, SMOS was not only able to advance science's understanding of the hydrological cycle and the exchange processes between Earth's surface and atmosphere, but also help improve weather forecasts and monitor snow and ice accumulation. This report from ESA TV. On November the 2nd, 2009, SMOS was launched from the Placets Cosmodrome on top of a rocket launcher. SMOS is one of ESA's Earth Explorer missions that address key scientific challenges and demonstrate new technology in space. Carrying a novel instrument to return information on soil moisture and ocean salinity, both key components of the Earth's water cycle, SMOS is advancing our knowledge of how water is cycled between the Earth's surface and the atmosphere. Understanding these exchange processes is crucial for understanding climate change, for improving weather prediction, and, for example, helping to optimise water consumption when growing crops. SMOS measures directly the surface soil moisture. So this is really the kind of rain gauge of the atmosphere. So we collect the rain and we store it. Measuring surface soil moisture gives us a hint on the rainfall, so we can partition the rainfall. But also looking at its, its evolution, we can link it to different other things. One of them is, of course, dryness or wetness of the soil, so floods or droughts. But also uh, the fact that the impact of uh, other events, such as El Nino, La Nina, and its impact on the rainfall distribution, hence the wetness. So it is used to infer or droughts or monitor the droughts, but also, of course, for food security in many regions to anticipate uh, crop yield, especially in uh, areas which are uh, limited by rainfall. 
This research satellite was originally planned to be in orbit for five years. But thanks to Europe's technological excellence, it has already doubled its life in orbit, providing time series data for a variety of applications. For instance, SMOS data is used for ESA's climate change initiative, through which data are compiled to understand how climate variables are changing over time. Its data are also combined with data from other satellites, such as Cryosat, to map the thickness of sea ice, a crucial climate variable. With SMOS, we have the possibility to measure the sea ice thickness. In particular, the thickness of thin ice we can measure with SMOS. We have also the companion, the ESA Earth Explorer Cryosat. This was specifically designed to measure the sea ice thickness, and Cryosat is great to measure the thickness of thick ice from the freeboard. But with SMOS, we can accurately measure the thin ice. SMOS data are also used to map the freezing and thawing of soil. This is important because frozen soil, and in particular permafrost, acts as a carbon sink. When permafrost thaws, carbon is released back into the atmosphere, amplifying the greenhouse effect. By comparing data over several years, SMOS helps us to better understand variables affected by and affecting climate change. Over the years, SMOS has proven to be a versatile satellite, going way beyond its original scientific goals. Today, SMOS data are even used operationally for weather prediction by organizations such as the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts. SMOS is very important for weather prediction because weather is related to forecast of the atmospheric variables, but it's also related to land surface forecast and ocean forecast, river forecast. And for this, for weather prediction, uh, our strategy is to develop an Earth system approach where we have a consistent forecast for the different components of the Earth system. And in this context, uh, variables uh, which are at the interface between land surface and atmosphere, or ocean and atmosphere, are very important to ensure the consistency across the different Earth system components. And SMOS is exactly that. It is providing information at the interface uh, between the different Earth system components. Over the course of a decade, SMOS has given the scientific community an unprecedented wealth of data. And while it has long surpassed its intended lifespan, SMOS remains hard at work while new missions are being studied and prepared to ensure continuous data sets with even higher resolutions and improved technology. And that report from ESA TV featured Jan Kerr, the French space agency's SMOS principal investigator. We also heard from Lars Kalensky, a climate researcher with the Alfred Wegener Institute, and ECMWF senior scientist Patricia de Rosnay. You're listening to Space Time. Still to come, a new study shows that kids exposed to traffic exhaust have a higher risk of developing schizophrenia. All that and more still to come on Space Time. A Northrop Grumman Cygnus cargo ship has successfully docked with the International Space Station. The Cygnus-12 was grabbed by the orbiting outpost robotic Canadarm and attached to the Earth-facing port on the Unity module as the two spacecraft were flying at 28,000 kilometres per hour, 400 kilometres above the South Pacific Ocean. The cargo ship had launched two days earlier aboard a Northrop Grumman Antares rocket from NASA's Wallops Island Flight Facility on the Virginian Mid-Atlantic coast. 
smoothly, about 100 seconds till main engine cutoff. Uh, just passing 100,000 feet, 100 feet per second squared. High altitude pitch up at 5 degrees. Enabling velocity steering. Engines remain stable. Engines remain at 100%. Attitude is nominal. BNO4 and BNO5 activated. Just passing 200,000 feet. Slow throttle down to 80% initiated. Main engine cutoff coming up in about 15 seconds. Engines 55%. Engines remain nominal. Main engine cutoff, nominal. PSS disabled. Stage one separation. ACS enabled. Attitude nominal. Sickness is separated from the stage one, and in the next few minutes, seconds, we'll be looking for the fairing separation. That's the shroud that covers and protects Cygnus during its launch. Fairing separation. Interstage separation. Stage two ignition. Stage two is that solid rocket fuel that will burn for about two minutes and 43 seconds. Everything proceeding smoothly for Cygnus. Cygnus was loaded with some 3,720 kilograms of fresh supplies and equipment bound for the Expedition 61 crew on station. Unusually, the CRS-12 cargo ship was docked to the space station at the same time as its predecessor, the CRS-11, which launched back in April on an extended duration flight. CRS-12 will remain docked until January. The manifest includes components to maintain the alpha magnetic spectrometer, the AMS-2, which is measuring antimatter in cosmic rays to better understand the formation of the universe and the search for evidence of dark matter. Astronauts will undertake a series of spacewalks in coming weeks to cut and reconnect fluid lines on the instrument, something never before tried in orbit, and something which will be a good dress rehearsal for future long-term stays on both the Moon and Mars. Now, speaking of the Moon and Mars, the Cygnus also brought the Astrorad Vest. It's a special garment designed to protect astronauts from radiation and which will be urgently needed for any extended-duration deep space flights to the Moon or Mars. Also delivered on the flight is a zero-G oven to test baking food in microgravity and a recycler to reprocess plastics into 3D printing filaments for made-in-space manufacturing. In an interesting experiment, the Expedition 61 crew will also try to remotely operate rovers on Earth's surface in order to collect geological samples as part of an investigation called Analog 1. Now, the point of this experiment isn't the samples. They're not important. What the experiment's actually designed to do is monitor human sensory motor function degradation, which is an issue in microgravity. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study warns that kids exposed to higher levels of nitrogen dioxide, a component of traffic exhaust fumes, have a higher risk of developing schizophrenia. The findings, reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, are based on a study of 23,355 people to see whether exposure to fumes increases the risk of mental illness, or if it's simply a case that people who live in more polluted areas are more likely to have genes that increase the risk of schizophrenia. What the researchers found was that childhood pollution exposure increased schizophrenia risk independently of people's genetic predisposition to the disease. 
A new study shows that many over 50-year-olds who have been diagnosed with autism in later life had actually grown up believing they were bad people because they couldn't fit in with the rest of society. The findings, reported in the journal Health, Psychology and Behavioural Medicine, is based on interviews with adults between the ages of 52 and 54 about their experiences of being diagnosed with autism in middle age. As children, the participants recounted having no friends and being isolated from others. And even when they became adults, they still couldn't understand why people treated them differently. Several had been treated for anxiety and depression. The study's lead author, Dr. Stephen Stagg from the Angela Ruskin University, says he found it heart-wrenching that these participants had grown up believing their whole lives that they must have been bad people, even referring to themselves as alien or non-human. Stagg claims that receiving a diagnosis of autism in middle age can be positive. In fact, some high-functioning people with autism have found the diagnosis a eureka moment, allowing them to finally understand why they're so different from the neurotypicals. Scientists have come up with a radical plan to try and save the critically endangered mountain pygmy possum by taking some of these little critters from the alpine habitat and introducing them into a warmer lowland rainforest environment. The study's authors, reporting the Royal Society's Philosophical Transactions B, use fossil evidence going back 25 million years to argue that the mountain pygmy possum is a species living on the fringes of what its biological ancestors would have enjoyed as a more temperate, less extreme environment. Researchers from the University of New South Wales have now started a special breeding program to get the possums acclimatised at Lithgow in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney. The study's lead author, paleontologist Professor Mike Archer, says the mountain pygmy possum is one of the species most vulnerable to climate change in Australia, and it faces extinction if alpine snowfalls continue to decline, as climate modelling predicts. A new study has found that lonely people with heart problems are more likely to die. The findings, reported in the journal Heart, examined patients treated at a specialist heart centre, finding those who reported feeling lonely were three times as likely to be anxious and depressed, with women three times more likely and men twice as likely to die after a year. Amazingly, the results held true regardless of what the patient had actually been diagnosed with when discharged from the centre. The researchers say these findings show that loneliness really should be viewed as a legitimate health risk for those who are seriously ill, and public health initiatives should aim to reduce that loneliness. On the brighter side, a study at the University of Sydney has found some truth in the old saying, dog is man's best friend. The findings, reported in the journal of the British Medical Council, are based on a study of a sample of new dog owners who saw significant reductions in loneliness within three months of acquiring their pet. Called the PAUSE trial, it's the first long-term Australian-based study looking at dog ownership and mental well-being in the community. The trial followed some 71 Sydney-siders over an eight-month period. It compared the mental well-being of new dog owners to those who haven't adopted a dog. Unidentified flying objects are back in the news, with a Gallup poll finding 60% of Americans now say that all UFO sightings can be explained by human activity or natural phenomena. However, the researchers also found some 7% are still unsure, and some 68% of Americans believe the US government is withholding information about what UFOs really are. Meanwhile, Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics says there's a Spanish UFO investigator who takes a serious look at UFO reports, which are really worth examining as good examples of true sceptical investigation. There's a fellow named, uh, pardon my pronunciation here, Vicente Juan 
Ballesta Olmos, who is a Spanish fellow who's been investigating UFOs for years, I mean for about 40 years. He's probably one of the best researchers of UFOs around and has been for a long, long time. We've published some of his papers actually in the Skeptic magazine. He is a believer in UFOs, although he might be sort of a lot more cautious about saying that. He actually runs a, a website called UFO Photocat, F-O-T-O-C-A-T. That's his blog. A lot of the stuff is he investigates photos and he would have he has an enormous archive of photos of UFOs, etc. And he's written articles. He wrote an article a few years ago, and we published it, republished it in our magazine, in which he said all the photographic evidence, let's, let's face it, 40, 50, 60 years, there's nothing there. And it was quite despairing, I think, of, of him to actually do that, to actually suggest that all these years of work, it's probably not, there's nothing to support uh, a belief in a UFO as an alien craft. And, yeah, that's that's a, a thing that many people come to believe, like people who have been lifelong searchers for Loch Ness monsters and things, and findings that give up the ghost and say, let's face it, it was, it was pretty pretty uh, hopeless cause anyway. But he's still out there, and he's still sort of writing. He's still reviewing photos and plastic cases from donkeys years ago. There's a, In a recent blog, he's looking at a a lightning-like phenomenon from a photo from 1893. So he's looking at the classic and the not-so-classic photographs of supposed UFOs and analysing them, and he analyses them really deeply. So if you want to see someone who's on the slightly UFO side of the belief spectrum, from you know, sort of UFO of centre, and who actually takes it very, very seriously and does good stuff, that's a, that's a site that I would actually recommend. It's a lot of reading involved. He has a lot of photos, obviously, and in his blogs, it just runs down one after the other after the other, down. There's a lot of scrolling involved in looking at his uh, blog site and uh, website, etc. But I mean, there, there's some really good stuff. So if you and he, he archives this back to you know, sort of, he's been doing it for the actual photographs, this website back to 2002. But I mean, his work even goes back even further than that. Very worthwhile having a look at it if you want the serious UFO investigator stuff. Or I could uh, cut to the chase for everybody and say it very simply. If the UFOs are real, they're probably secret government black ops operations being developed by the military, or alternatively, they're some sort of meteorological phenomena. That's really about it. But that's, that's the term that's used these days, isn't it? That, that, that instead of UFO, which implies you know, an unidentified flying object, though it has to be unidentified is easy, flying means it's under some sort of power, and if an object means it's a thing, has now changed to UAP, which is unidentified aerial phenomenon. That's what the US um, Navy use now, yeah, to describe things that their pilots are seeing because the pilots don't want to be tarnished as being crackpots because they're serious flyboys. So instead yeah. of UFOs, it's unidentified aerial phenomena, and that way they can report these things without feeling as if they're well, without feeling as if they're foolish or idiots. And yeah. and most of these will turn out to be top secret drones that are being used to deliberately test the pilots. But most of them turn out to be Venus. <laughs> oh, still. Oh, yeah. Uh, Oh, especially amongst the amateur, yeah, not so much necessarily amongst the, the military, etc. But I mean, amongst the amateur fraternity, Venus accounts for about eighty percent of, uh, of flying saucer sites. But I mean, yeah, I know Venus. Venus is is really big. You look at, if you look for sightings around the, you know, as you would know, in the morning and in the in the sunset in the evening, and you just say, where was it? And they say, oh, this part of the sky. Venus yeah, they say, yes, I know what Venus looks like. It wasn't Venus. And they say, well, you saw <laughs> Venus next to it, then did you? No, yeah, it was that's just right. a UFO. See, I have heard someone say the UFO was in front of Venus. Oh, well, of course, yeah. yes. So how you told the, told the difference, I do not know. But, yeah, that's a pretty simple test, too. especially, you know, early morning, late evening, you know, sunset, sunrise around then. 
ask them, you know, whether in the east, whether in the west, and uh, that's where you find Venus. And it does. It accounts for a very, very large percentage of uh, UFO sightings still. Now, Americans have a mixed view on UFOs, don't they, according to a Gallup poll finding? Americans have a very strange view of UFOs. These days, the weird thing is that um, most people are sceptical of UFOs. Actually, there's about uh, two-thirds of people say, yeah, they're not, they're not real flying saucers, UFOs. They're something else. And the belief in UFOs has gone down slightly, Like in, uh, and the belief in government cover-ups has gone down slightly as well. Apparently, the belief in UFOs is stronger in the Western U.S., which doesn't surprise me very much. Talking about California and states around that area, the most disbelieving, if you like, in the UFOs is people in the Midwest who are out there on the open plains. And but they that's can where the cow mutilations occur. I know, surely, I know. Surely they, they would believe in UFOs, if anyone does. You'd think so. In the Midwest, 27% of people believe that UFOs are an alien spacecraft, whereas in the Western states of America, 41 believe. So that's a... That's a yeah, that's well, a they've legalised marijuana over there, haven't they? So. <laughs> There's no difference between men and women, really. They're almost exactly the same level of beliefs, right? The younger people tend to have a stronger belief than older people, that uh, college graduates have less belief than people who haven't gone to college, who are high school graduates or whatever, or lower. People with more money tend to have lower belief than people with fewer dollars in their hand. That's would, I would say would be allied to education levels, quite frankly, but it's not a huge difference, though, anyway. And... Interestingly, people with no religion have a stronger belief than people with Protestant or Christian religion. Oh, isn't that interesting? And I think that's that's really sort of new ages. Oh, right, yes. I don't think it's atheist necessarily, but 40% of people who say they have no religion believe in, in that, that these are alien spacecraft, whereas only 31 say, are Protestant or you know, are, are Christian rather than Catholics. 32% are Catholics and 31% of others. So, yeah, people with no religion tend to have a stronger belief, but which no religion is the thing to look at. Well, they're the ones waiting for the little pebble to take them into the uh, spaceship hidden in the coma. <laughs> yeah, of the yeah. Whatever. There's a lot of cult people and that sort of thing, but yeah, and a lot of new ages who want to commune with the flying sources. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com, or from your favourite podcast download provider. If you want more Space Time, check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as loads of images, news stories, videos, and things on the web that I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word and in lowercase, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, on Facebook, just go to www.facebook.com slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary, and you can also find us on the Spacetime with Stuart Gary YouTube channel. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 